Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. Has the advertising industry been so busy trying to save the world that it's lost sight of its own commercial purpose? Welcome to the first episode of The B-Side for 2021. I'm kicking off the year with a discussion on what many believe is one of the major problems plaguing the advertising industry, and I had the great pleasure of doing so with one of my favourite advertising creative thought leaders, Mr. Steve Harrison. Steve Harrison is a copywriter, creative director, and author who is regarded by Campaign Magazine as the greatest direct marketing creatives of his generation. His latest book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, has been described by the IPA as the most provocative advertising book we've seen in years. Steve and I tackle his thesis at the heart of Can't Sell, Won't Sell and cover many of the topics including what's gone wrong with advertising and what we need to do to fix it. And he shares his refreshingly simple and inspiring creative process, which demystifies the methods by which we come up with ideas to free up more time on creating them. This was one of the most enjoyable, confronting yet refreshing chats I've had on the podcast. If you want to hear diverse opinions from some of the world's most innovative thinkers, then this is it. But brace yourself, Steve pulls absolutely no punches. And I absolutely love it. And I know you will too. Cheers. Lancashire and uh, Blackpool. You're not in Blackpool at the moment, are you? No, I'm in uh, Beckenham in Kent. In, Beckenham uh, in South, Kent. Southeast London. <laughs> Fantastic. We're with Steve Harrison. He is in Beckenham in Kent. Uh, the reason I mentioned Blackpool was uh, there was a little email exchange between us and you said you had to go up to Blackpool to relieve your um, your, your, Rose, your, yes. your mother's neighbours, Jack and Rose, who were looking after your mum, 90-year-old mum up in Blackpool and Lancashire. 91, actually. She turned 91. So where's Beckenham? Beckenham is southeast London. You might have heard of... Crystal Palace or Croydon or Bromley. Yes. We're in the Crystal Palace Croydon Triangle. It's a long way from Lancashire, that's for sure. Well, like a lot of people I knew in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, we realised that there was not much happening up there if you wanted to make a career for yourself. And everyone transplanted themselves, as as happens with most emigrants. Yeah, yeah. And we all moved to South London, Brixton and Peckham and my my family come from uh, on the Barrows side. We they're all from Norfolk, uh, around Norwich, and so on. So, yeah, yeah. So there's the generations and generations. I'm sure if I go there, I'll run into a family member, <laughs> no doubt. But I've never been. But hey, anyway, enough about me, Steve Harrison. I'm with Steve Harrison, and we're going to talk about where where it all started. Give us a bit of a background for people who don't know who you are and the impact you've had on the industry. Why don't we start from the beginning? Wow, I'm a late starter, to be quite honest. I didn't begin in the industry until I, I didn't get a job in the industry until I was 29. I stayed in academia uh, primarily because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I got an MA uh, and got a PhD and then eventually ran out of academic options. I wanted to be a lecturer, but it's a very difficult world to crack. And it's also much more Byzantine in its politics than the advertising industry. Academia is a great preparation for the supposedly cutthroat world of advertising. But my God, I mean, it's a, it's a playpen in comparison to 
how academics behave. I don't mean that it's necessarily ruthlessly cutthroat. It's just a very competitive world. You know, there's very limited funds in academia and there's a lot of talent. And it's it's a scramble to get hold of that that tenure and 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 the recognition, etc. Um, and advertising is, was was pretty easy in comparison, I would argue, as you've probably found, you know, your your, your observations of it anyway. So I got a job. I got a job as a um, as a researcher at Ogilvy and Mather. Ogilvy and Mather Direct. Were you called a strategist or a planner then? No, I was called a librarian. I'm trying <laughs> to dignify my role with the title of researcher, man. You know, kind of. <laughs> but what I really was was was, was <laughs> my job title was was librarian, which wow. is about as yeah. as it gets. You've got a PhD in American society, cinema, and television. That is quite an yeah. interesting, I guess, precursor to working in the advertising industry. Uh, journalism was my major. Sure. And I did want to have some impact upon society rather than simply exist within the groves of academy. And I was inspired by Kennedy's administration. I had this fantasy, you know, kind of like the Kennedy administration did draw on the best and the brightest. He took from academia many of his advisors. I mean, for example, G.K. Galbraith was, I think, highly influential as the economic advisor. I figured that maybe, maybe I could make the leap from academia into some kind of social, cultural, political role. But I, I mean, I did media studies. I did the, before anyone did media studies, you know, and now it's almost compulsory to study some kind of popular culture and, and to yeah. divine from that some deep significance about the world. I, I, I did media studies or media arts and production. Yeah, but you're 20 years younger than me, so you know, there was nobody doing this. Because everyone that. else was doing the liberal arts and you, you were there doing media studies, which would have been yeah. unheard um, of. Yeah. What, did, what did the difference between high noon tell you about um, you know, American society and the Magnificent Seven tell you about American mm. society? Yeah. You know, kind of space of 10 years, the long hero cleaning up society. And by 10 years later, in reflection of the growth of corporate America, it takes a whole group of people to, you know, kind of yeah. uh, right the wrongs of society. Anyway, so that was. So after the librarian gig, where did you go from there? I Part of my job was to write research reports for if we were pitching Xerox, we would we would need a research analysis of various competitors and I did a good job at those I think and a, a guy called Drayton Bird who was a the doyen of direct marketing copywriters was our executive creative director and global chairman I think or vice chairman of Ogilvy and May the Direct he was a terrifying chap still is actually but he he got sight of my work and he said do you want to be a writer and at that juncture I'd been offered a 12-month post the lecture at Manchester University. So it really was one of those crossroads moments, you know. And Drayton, with not a lot of encouragement, said, I'll give you six months and if you're not making me any money, I will fire you. <laughs> so I took a punt on, on Drayton, basically, and worked like hell in order not to get fired. Because I'd never earned more than hand-to-mouth wages, it was just so fantastic to, be, to have a salary coming in. Oh, you know, for sure, for sure. £7,000 a year, I think I was earning, which yeah. for me, 
beyond rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And I was being paid to do something I enjoyed as opposed to paying for bar work and gardening and that kind of stuff. Mm. And I just thought this is magnificent. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd always been encouraged to read by Drayton, by David Ogilvy. You were supposed to learn, you're supposed to read stuff, you know, and get mm. better at what you did. In my own agency, HTW, we we were the we were. I mean, not blowing smoke at my own ass, but you know, we were. I think we were the best creative direct marketing shop in the world for about five years. About five years, yeah. The whole basis of our success was we trained people. I mean, we trained people. We mm-hmm. we took people in from other good agencies or or off the street, essentially, and we said, forget everything that you've ever done before. You will do this our way. Sure. Otherwise, bugger off back to from whence you came, you know. Yeah. That was at HTW. And, yeah. yeah. And you started HTW. Yeah. Uh, Martin Trott and Tim Patton and I started an agency called HPT Brand Response. We, we hit upon the idea that there were two disciplines in the industry that were mutually exclusive. There were the brand, very good brand building shops in the mid-90s in the UK mm. and some fairly functional direct marketing shops. Mm. Um, and clients would go to one and the other and the brand people would know bugger all about getting a response and the direct people would know bugger all about building a brand. We were smart, three smart people and we said, well, an, an agency should be able to do both. So every piece of work should fulfill a tactical function and every piece of work should fulfill a strategic function. Mm-hmm. And so you have a strategic proposition, which is the brand idea, and you have a, a tactical proposition, which is why why do you want people to do what you want them to do with that particular communication? And that went very well. And for some reason or other, Y&R had inherited 40% of us. WPP owned 40% of us or something like that. And Y&R said to us, Wonderman are dead in the water. They're losing 40 grand a month. Sure. Wonderman in London are are really on the on their knees do do you want to do a reverse takeover and that's what we did so 1997 we set up brand response shop 2001 we reverse took over wonderman and until 2007 we were harrison troughton wonderman all right i see yeah and so working in direct you're always conscious of the fact that there's some poor sod at the other end of what you're doing and you owe an absolute responsibility not to insult them, not to fill their lives with litter, not to impose upon them something you think is funny or you find enjoyable Mm, or the mm. great craft skills. You know, look at my craft skills, aren't they clever? You know, and the craft skills are the servant of the idea and the idea's purpose is to involve and interest this person and show them something that can make their life better. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of like, <laughs> and another great hero of mine was Howard Gossage. You know, he was one of the greatest ad men ever, you know, was absolutely adamant that his first loyalty wasn't to the client who was paying his wages. It was to the person who was in receipt of the message he was writing. And he always said, I can't write to everyone. I can only write to somebody. And if you imagine, James, that you're writing to one person, then it's it's difficult to insult their intelligence. Oh, for sure. My fundamental belief, it's what drives my attitude towards marketing, is that it should be about understanding and providing value to our market. You yes. Know, and, and, and I think your philosophy of speaking to the individual, and if you can do that, develop such an intimate relationship with 
your market in almost a personal manner, then I think, wow, what else could you do? I mean, that, but it's that old saying: advertising is what you do when you can't afford to send a salesman. That's right. I love that saying. I, that, that, that was an Ogilvy. Um, I, I think it was Claude Hopkins. Was it or, Claude, Claude Hopkins? It might have been Ogilvy. Of course, was a a, a great curator of other people's wisdom. God, I've used the word curator. I hate that. Uh, he was the gatherer and disseminator. The, 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 the aggregate. He could aggregate all of this wisdom yeah, into one. an aggregate, yeah. And came up with a few good ones himself. <laughs> the, the reason why I enjoyed direct mail was because every other form of advertising, I think, is mediated by it, it, it can only be it can only be advertising because it's mediated by a screen. And if there's a screen there, it ceases to be a visitation from the real world. It's yes. been mediated by technology and been presented to you for your consumption, be yes. it on a, on a mobile phone, on a television set, you know, kind of, or on a billboard, you know, yes. or in a press ad, whatever. But with direct mail, I used to love that because you could send people bits of the real world. It wasn't a visitation yeah. from the world of marketing. It was a visitation from the real world, and you were sending people real things, but with a deft piece of commercial spin, you were enabling them to see the real world differently slightly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that was I, that's why I was a great fan of direct mar- mail as well as just direct marketing. And we also, we also take it steal, stealing from Gossage, uh, were the first people, I think, to realise we weren't the first people, but we were early adopters of the idea that the advertising was simply the first stage in the in the marketing communications program, and the rest of it would be done by the media. Baguski did that at Crispin Porter. If you if you remember Crispin Porter's great work, you know, yes, kind of yeah, Baguski yeah, did that. Alex yeah. Baguski did it, and he said he used to sit around going, "What would Gossage do?" And, um, and I did it because I was a fan of Howard Gossage from about 1988 onwards. And Droger did it. And I'm not sure whether Dave Droger was a fan of or even aware of Gossage, but I would say that Droger was, again, one of the, was the early adopter and has carried on doing it, that the advertising is simply the first stage in the comms cycle that the media will then... You've got to say something interesting enough that the media pick it up. And then amplify it. So you wrote the book, Howard Gossage, Changing the World is the Only Fit Work of a Grown Man. And you also followed that up with a um, documentary on Howard as well. It's had limited limited viewings, unfortunately, for legal reasons. And can we we see it anywhere? Is it online and available for... um, Purchase, download or streaming? The legal reasons go away... in about three months' time. Oh, so fantastic. thereafter, I'm going to be able to make it, as I've always wanted to do, make it publicly, freely available. Well, that's that's good timing. We'll put a link up in the show notes and we'll end a date when it's available. That'll be fantastic. Yes, no, no, no problem. Uh, look, look, people can research you. You are very um, prolific in your work. Uh, you know, you well, are an influential person. In many, many ways, uh, I think some of your books go against the grain for many people, but I think these are things that people need to hear. And I think that's what 
you've done in a lot of instances through your books and your work. It's getting people to question the way we do things, why we do it a certain way, in a very academic, objective manner. It's not in a, any contrarian manner. It's a academic, rigorous, as you've come from academia and you're used to that yeah. world, whereas I think in the advertising and creative industries, we're all very sensitive souls. And if anything is questioned or rigorously tested, you know, people get a bit offended. It, it might have been slightly contentious to write a book called How to Do Better Creative Work, work which was very prescriptive about how to do better creative work. I think that uh, you, you have said that creatives live in a fenced-off patch of the industry, protected from the broader world of business and marketing. Absolutely. And I think mm. it is a sandpit that they're allowed to play in, you know, kind of. Mm. And, and I, you know, you could go into most advertising agencies and say, what's the purpose of a big idea? Yeah. And they wouldn't yeah. be able to tell you. And I kind of reduced the the... The, the business of doing better effective advertising to a process. And it, it you know, and, and summed it up as that it's, it requires two big ideas. One, a marketing idea, which is why would anyone be interested in this bloody thing in the first place? And that can be basically defined by asking two questions. What's the problem faced by your prospect at the moment? And what's the solution provided by the thing you're trying to sell them? Yeah, and I love that. I, I, I really want to get into that process. I That was the one thing that struck me, and I think we started by talking about my want and my disbelief that there wasn't a process for what yes. we do. When it, it, what we do really isn't rocket science, and that is a, a cliche, I know, but it's not. It's the nuance and the magic that happens between the steps of the process. Yeah, but the process mm. itself, the blocks itself, can be very straightforward. We used to advise our clients. I used to tell our suits, you know, go and ask the client, go and ask the client those two questions. If they can't answer them, tell them to save their money. Yeah. I, I love that Ogilvy quote. If your advertising doesn't have a big idea, it'd be like a ship passing in the night. That's like a ship in the night, yes. But, yeah. uh, but the big problem is, James, that people think that it's just the one big idea. They think you, you just require a big creative idea. Coming up with an idea that is wrong can be more damaging than not doing any advertising at all. You know, I mean, I, I think the jury might still be out on the mouldy burger, frankly. Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure about the mouldy burger. I haven't had time to sit on it for long enough, no pun intended. I mean, it looks like someone has sat on it, that's for sure. But um, yeah, it highlighted the fact that previously they weren't using real ingredients. Yeah. You know, and, and it made me question what's in them now. You know, It's like, don't show me the behind the curtains issues. And when companies start showing you the behind the curtains, unless you're dramatizing or demonstrating um, the proposition <laughs> to use your um, approach, then why why would you bother? Those consumers don't care, you know, well, at least. Exactly. Yeah. You're talking to you. So, uh, you know, any advertising that elicits the response, I'm very pleased for you, isn't very good advertising. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm very pleased for you. Well done. That's fantastic. Anyway. <laughs> okay, why don't we um, park a few of those topics and we'll come back to them because I think they're really good to pick up on. People know a lot about you, your your work, where you've been, your books, obviously. What's something people don't know? What would you say your B-side would be? My B-side? Yes. Um, well, I – what would um, – I'm afraid uh, that between, <laughs> between writing outright better creative work – and doing can't sell, won't sell. I 
pretty much disappeared off the advertising radar, I think, because I am out of the racket. Uh, but I wrote a book and made a f- documentary, a feature-length documentary, about uh, a town in Portugal called Povo de Vazim and told the story of life there under Dr. Uh, Dr. Salazar, the Portuguese oh, wow. dictator. Um, and it was set in 1956, and it was inspired by a photograph taken by the French queen of world cinema, Agne Varda, who took a photograph there in 1956 of a barefoot fisher girl walking past a Lux advertisement featuring Sophia Loren. Um, and I, I'm sure Varda, it was composed, but it's such a fantastic statement about two cultures, that the barefoot fishing community and the world of commerce and consumption. That is fantastic, yeah. Uh, and yeah. so I wrote the book. It's called Un Canto de Duas Cidades, or A Tale of Two Cities. And the two cities are the fishing village, which is steeped in medieval mores, and the tourist town, which was emerging slowly into a capitalist consumerist world. That's fantastic. Uh, under, under, a, under a very tight conservative authoritarian mm. government led yeah. by Dr. Salazar. It's funny how those images have such a profound and visceral, lasting effect on you. You're no schmo yourself. You're an award-winning filmmaker, and I did like Mum Said. So, oh, have uh, you seen it? Oh, my God. I'm uh, t- t- slightly um, autobiographical in somewhat. Yeah, it's based on it? my... Yes, yeah. Yeah, so it was an oh, easy one to write because there's only about five lines of dialogue, but... Um, yeah, yeah it's, no, it's, it's a masterpiece of concision. It really yeah. is. Oh, thank you. That's that's an absolute honour. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, yeah. Well, um, I don't know where to go from there because I no, wasn't expecting I'm, you uh, to have done My partner and I, Marag, made the documentary and we won the Portuguese Documentary Film Festival's best doc- – the Portugal Documentary – the Portugal Film Festival's best documentary. But I noticed that you picked up three bloody awards and one from – the New York Independent Film Festival, so I'm very much in uh, Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, that's the part of the thing. You do it for love, uh, filmmaking. Yes. And um, if you can get it, it just a showing, like, I don't want, I don't need to win anything. No, no, to be shortlisted or to be featured featured in the show is, um, is, 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 is in and of itself. In terms of uh, what you're currently working on, what, what is it that keeps you busy or has been keeping you busy during, during the COVID lockdown? Um, looking after my mum. To be quite honest, um, you know, I, I said this to a great friend of mine, Steve Stratton, a creative director, and I said, over the past 10 years, of all the things that I'm most, that, that I think have been most worthwhile, I think looking after my mum is the thing that I would say has been most worthwhile of all of the, you know, all of my books and all of that. If I could say that, that what was the most important? It, mm. It's been uh, making sure she's okay. Over the past nine months, I've been back and forth relieving Rose and Jack of their neighbourly duties. Yes. <laughs> um, also, but again, I mean, I wrote Can't Sell, Won't Sell and expected it to, I expect to be buried under a heap of obliquy and, you know, kind of, and abuse and whatever. And then I could return to the um, obscurity from whence I came. And it hasn't happened, you know, kind of yeah. it's, it's been, ext- I, you know, kind of I would say that 95% of the feedback has been gone. I haven't, I've had one tweet, you know, one, one bad tweet, you know, kind of. Um, and uh, with the exception of 
um, Tim Lindsay at um, at being AB. I don't think there's anybody expressed no. an adverse opinion. I think what I'm I might do is I might write the follow up to it. What happened next? You know. So we should jump into the book, but I'll start with a quote from David Ogilvy. He says, "Your role is to sell. Don't let anything distract you from the sole purpose of advertising." You pick up on that in your book where you say you had emblazoned on your walls in the Ogilvy offices, we sell or else. (laughs) So that's a really good start for the book. I mean, it's called Can't Sell, Won't Sell. What inspired you to write this book? And can you talk to me a little bit about it? Um, Well, it was an an observation made by a a friend of mine, a great friend of mine called Patrick Collister, who told me that of the 28 Grand Prix winners at that year's Cannes Festival, only five of them had got an increase in sales as an objective. Mm. Um, And that kind of backed up things that I'd been reading anyway. The IPA, the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, had also observed this reluctance to sell and declared a crisis of creative effectiveness, you know, and, and run an entire week Uh, to discuss what this crisis meant and how we could overcome it. I looked at WARC. Are you familiar with WARC, W-R-A-C? They do an analysis of all of the DNA, DCAN, One Show, Links, award winners um, over in 2020. And they told us that, that of the 12 top award winners, only five would have resulted in anybody putting their hand in the pocket and pulling a debit card out. And Isn't that yeah. and, and this, I just thought, well, this is the work that we are holding up as exemplary, right? Hmm. Uh, and what is it telling people? So I looked at Campaign's Cream Awards, which are aimed at identifying the new talent coming through the industry. And out of the 20 winners, only three of them had selling as an objective, would have resulted in anybody buying something. So 17 of them were... Cause related and social purpose related. Seventeen, wow. Yeah, seventeen out of twenty. The youngsters who are. I mean, I, you talk to anybody who teaches at the schools. You talk to anybody who's interviewing young people coming into the industry, and they've got a book full of social purpose ideas. They don't want they as as somebody I quite think is uh, Benedict Pringle says that if you ask them to do something commercial, they hold their nose, and it's no wonder. Because the messages that are being disseminated by the industry are that unless it's got a social purpose strategy, it ain't worth doing. Yeah, yeah. If advertising is a function of marketing, marketing is a function of business. And the primary objective of business is to make a profit for stakeholders, ultimately. Then why have we lost interest in selling? It's, It's why are we holding our noses? There are several reasons, but the one that I've highlighted, which I think Mark Ritson said when he read the book, he said, no one's done this before, and that is shine a light on the left-wing politics of people in our industry. When I was researching this, I think the Wall Street Journal estimated that in Adland in the United States, 80% of the people who work in the advertising industry are Democrat. Uh, When the article was written, it was, uh, and, and predominantly they were Bernie Sanders Democrats and uh, not what would now be called Joe Biden Demo- De- Democrats. 
Research done by Tenzer and Murray indicated that advertising was twice as likely to be left-leaning than the mainstream. And my own research indicated that left and left centre Adland outnumbered right and right centre Adland by four to one. And I think that we are now so left-leaning an industry that we cannot bring ourselves to stoke the engine of consumption and growth that free market capitalism relies upon us to do. You have referenced Orlando Wood's book, Lemon. And I think in Lemon, he talks about the cultural shift of the left brain thinking to right brain thinking and the associated emotion-based reasoning. Would you say there's a link? Are we sort of right brain thinkers in a left-wing culture? His, his book is fantastic. It's called Lemon, How the Advertising Brain Turned Sour. And it's based upon a book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. Um, and he says, cultures vacillate between those dominated by right brain and those dominated by left brain. And the right brain, it deals in metaphor and nuance and analogies and stereotypes and subtleties and creative uh, connections, you know, sure, kind of sure. the combination of old elements, new combinations of old elements. Whereas the left brain is didactic, it's hectoring, it wants order, it, um, and it sticks its finger in your chest. Now, if you look at the advertising in the United Kingdom, and I, I hope you don't suffer this in, the, in, in Australia at the moment, but my God, the proliferation of supers, you know, kind of someone, yeah, a voiceover yeah. telling you and then a super telling you, yes. you know, kind of, so yeah. there is no, there is no, there is no idea which dramatizes or demonstrates the benefit. Mm -hmm. the, the, there is simply a hectoring tone which tells you what to do. And what to think, what to do, what to buy, when to buy it. Yeah, there's no development of the concept. It is cut, 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 caption, 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 shout, shout, shout. Now, if you, if you look at a lot of the work done for social purpose strategies, then there's very little nuance, very little use of metaphor, very little, very little empathy uh, displayed. You are being told, right? You are being told that there is a right side of history and a wrong side of history. And people who are delivering the message are on the right side of history. And that, 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 that binary approach, and I know you have said that you... you you, you advise people to avoid the simplistic tribalism that permeates our cultural discourse. But the left side of the brain telling people that you're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, kind of, uh, that, that silence is violence. Yeah. That, it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really violence. dangerous situation where we... Yeah. Um, someone used an analogy of starlings and the migratory uh, formations they make when they're um, murmurations yeah murmurations that's the that's the exact one and the the idea that they for a very sp split second they will follow an outlier and um otherwise they would f all fly in a block towards a wall and 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 you know yeah and and you wouldn't get the beautiful patterns and uh, organic flows and yes. rhythms and everything else. And I think that's my analogy for listening to uh, voices. And I think you've got to listen to the flat earthers. You've got to listen to the extreme uh, right wingers. Yes. You've got to listen to the extreme left wingers. It doesn't mean we have to uh, agree with all of them, but we can entertain their opinions for some time and there might be something we can learn from them. 
And the, yeah. the aggregation of all those um, opinions and voices creates this wonderful murmuration, you know, this wonderful, <laughs> flowing, beautiful... Fluid, uh, organic and, culture. I think we all know people in the industry who are three parts ECD and two parts a social justice warrior, SJW. You know, kind of, and you get on in the industry now by not necessarily winning an IPA effectiveness award, but by speaking out for the trending progressive cause of the day. And I've spoken to creative directors who have gone up for jobs and they have lost out to people whose profile fits the public persona that the agency wishes to project to the world. Going back to the IPA, and you did talk briefly about the IPA's recent report, Crisis in Creative Effectiveness. Now, that was authored by Peter Field, uh, one right. half of Peter Field and Les Burnett, who gave us the wonderful and hugely influential The Long and the Short of It. Yeah. Now, yeah. for people who may say that it's not all about sales, or they may associate sales with the perception that sales are a short-term objective. What about yeah. building the brand? I mean, I started an agency called Brand Response, which mm. gives mm. you some indication of the fact, the respect I hold for sure. the building of a strong brand idea and the reinforcing and refreshing of that idea by every piece of communication that you produce. So I'm totally in agreement. When I say selling, I see brand building as simply a, as an important function of selling, James. I'm actually very worried by the fact that if, if advertising agencies have lost interest in selling, then the budget, then clients bu- will continue to push their budgets below the line to the sales activation and direct and digital sales activation shops. Um, and in the words of the great Ian Pritchard, who's a planner out in your neck of the woods, we will be reduced to delivery. The technology will enable us to deliver junk mail by drone, <laughs> but it will still be junk mail. Mm, mm, yeah. And once those budgets have been sent below the line, they won't come back, James. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it is clients and hence agencies are focused on saving the world instead of selling? And are organisations confusing purpose with just being good corporate citizens? I think that the corporate social responsibility is a defensive um position taken by by clients who who by companies who now know they can be called out agencies are correct to advise their 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 clients to be strict in their in the upholdance of those strategies um i also think that agencies might start um physician heal thyself there aren't that many b core advertising agencies i think there are about 30 in london and uh, and you know, kind of like, anyway, that, that's, a, that's another thing. But no, I don't think that, co- that, that social purpose is then transferable. Carte blanche, I mean, en masse as a marketing strategy, as a go-to-market strategy. I think it works. I'm, please don't get me wrong. I, I am not arguing that social purpose cannot be used as a go-to-market Strategy. There are excellent examples of businesses that are thriving and making great profit who are forces for good. Whereas some other organisations, like, say, a soft drink manufacturer, yeah. is trying to be a, a force for good. 
I want you to be a good corporate citizen. You know, yeah. I would like you to pay your taxes. <laughs> I would like yeah. you to use materials that won't hang around for the next thousand years. But that's on you. That's 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 you just be a good corporate you citizen. Be doing that. You should be doing that. stuff. But don't talk to me about like um, don't get involved in politics. You can't play in that space. You know what oh. I mean? Like maybe talk to me about recycling because that's quite quite relevant. But I think social purpose provides a very simple and easy to understand solution to the baffling complexities of how to do marketing. You know, and it's like the and the and the industry does this periodically, where it comes up with an idea and then goes out of its way to the ultimate cost of its clients to prove that that idea is right. And 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 time and time again, that idea is applicable to say ten percent of the businesses which adopted it, but ninety percent of the businesses who 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 experiment with this uh, are damaged by it. Every five years, a new bandwagon rolls along. And every five years, the industry goes out of its way to sell the bandwagon before the bandwagon's wheels have been checked, before its steering has been tested, um, and all of the other things that prove that it might be roadworthy. Well, it's funny you say that because going back to the IPA's crisis in creative effectiveness, they analysed the the reason for this lack of creative effectiveness and they were talking about the lack of long-term brand building campaigns in place of short-term one-off campaigns that uh, yeah. may be designed to elicit some sort of response and maybe ones that use um, social purpose in place of a long-term brand-building initiative. Yeah. Well, I think that, 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 I mean, if you look at the IPA's Effectiveness Awards 2020, of the 10 big winners, only one is vaguely related to a social purpose strategy. Um, but, yeah, but it's, e- you know, it's easy for lazy CMOs to, to buy the late, you know, kind of to, to say, yeah, okay, that, that, that's, what we, that's, what, uh, that's where this year's, this year's budget will go. You know, kind of in the agencies, it's easy for them because it's fashionable to do so, and also because it chimes with their political views. And I'm not talking about politics as left-wing politics as I would remember them, or maybe you would remember them of a certain age. These are not social democratic politics that, that are aimed about elevating the, the lot of the working man, of re- reviving trade union power of guaranteeing that people work for an equitable minimum wage. None of those old-fashioned socialist values. The, 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 new, the new left-wing is culturally left-wing. So it's essentially the working class can kiss my ass. I've got the, Europe, the executive creative director's job at last, you know. Um, so there's no interest in the working classes. What, what the, the new left are doing are protecting the... The, the minorities who they see capitalism as being the victims of. And when you throw the environment into the charge sheet, you'll see why capitalism is not something that the new cultural left feel any kind of responsibility to or loyalty to or sense that they need to protect and grow it. Yeah, you, you, you do mention this left-wing bias quite a bit in, in the book and especially the first few chapters. Um, and how we can make us quite intolerant. And I must say, 
an industry that does pride itself on being quite progressive and its left leanings. Yeah. I think we've lagged behind the corporate world. When you look at the advertising industry in Sydney, for example, most people are from either um, the more affluent areas, so Bondi and all the inner west, or like I live in the inner west, so I must say, but they're either yeah. from Bondi or Manly. Uh, they're yeah. either white 29-year-old Anglo-Saxon males who come from, you know, middle-class families who have had a pretty decent education. Uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom, 70% of the people who work in our industry come from the most affluent cohort. They're the main breadwinner, unless it's just the one breadwinner. Maybe there were two of them, but the main breadwinner was in the AB background, so they may have had two incomes mm. coming in, you know, mm. kind of mm. like, whereas the national average is 26%. Okay, eighty-eight percent of the people in our industry have gone to university or have got a degree. These people, their aspirations are no longer those of of working class, lower middle class, and the majority of mainstream people. They're affluent, as you say. They live in affluent suburbs, so their aspirations are no longer how do I put bread on the table, how do I pay for my mortgage, how do I get whatever. They've pitched them higher than that. Okay, they want to save the planet. Whereas the majority of the mainstream are still wrestling with the vagaries of day-to-day survival. Now, whereas advertising's aspiration window, as Tenzer and Murray indicate in there, and please read this, everybody, it's Ian Murray and Andrew Tenzer's The Aspiration Window. It's free to read. It's from Reach Research. And it just says how completely out of touch. You know, you would need a very strong telescope to see Adlan's bubble circling the real world nowadays, James. Mm, mm, mm. At what point do we talk about actually what we do, which is provide value to our market and make a profit for our for our clients? Now, I read an article about a very famous Australian agency that um, sold to a huge marketing consultancy, and never once did they mention client, they didn't mention business, they didn't mention marketing, they didn't mention anything of the like. They didn't mention profits or objectives. And I thought yeah. that's really sad because this guy, he left such a legacy. And I know this person who left uh, did some amazing things, but it really disappointed me that his success wasn't associated with clients' success because I know they've brought great profits to a lot of the clients they had and they had some of Australia's largest clients and they, they've done quite well. But that wasn't seen as a noble summary of his tenure at this amazing agency it was the the stuff he did the tactics he did not why you were doing it in the first place it was more about the stuff you were doing whilst you were there and i thought it sort of trivialized the impact he had look i mean it, there was there's always been a sense that i mean such and such in their golden days had the likes of comet and um you know kind of supermarket whatever which no one ever talked about which generated 70 percent of all of their income hmm. you know kind of so advertising is always kept quiet about the commercial stuff anyway. But I do fear nowadays that, that we, not only are we keeping quiet about it, but we're quite ashamed of it. That's the problem. And I've used this analogy quite a few times on the podcast, but if you ask any young advertising upstart, you know, um, he thinks he's a, working as a florist and he's yeah. arranging, he's yes. arranging yes. flowers, when in reality he's, he's a commando in yeah. the war for wallets. And he's holding weapons of mass consumption. But if if increasingly you don't believe in that war being fought, mm. then you you know kind of then you're not a willing willing conscript. And I my argument is that the industry is staffed by people who do not believe in that war. 
you know, mm. who do not believe in that commercial purpose, who do not believe in demand generation, who do not believe in consumption and growth, because they, they have been taught that this is an evil presence in our society. Mm. And it is the root cause of all of the problems that their political inclinations identify. And nobody is making an argu- a counter-argument to that. No one, is, no one is saying the good that capitalism does. Nobody points out that every time you sell something, somebody else gets paid, right? Nobody says that when something you've worked on sell, makes a sale, someone gets paid. And it isn't just the person in the shop where that thing was bought. The per- another person gets paid. That's the person who made the thing or the person who grew it. And then the person who stored it in the warehouse, he gets paid or she gets paid. And the person who did the packaging, they get paid. And the person who drove the truck to the shop, they get paid. And the person on minimum wage who comes in and cleans the damn shop when it's shut, they get paid as well. All because the thing that you advertised created a sale. And nobody ever makes that argument. And that is a force for good. And nobody is making the argument for advertising's economic value. There's a million people unemployed in the UK. 250,000 businesses say they'll go out of business in the next six months. This is what advertising's force for good can help, where advertising's force for good can help. But can I find in Campaign Magazine, in the review of the year, any reference to the challenge that lies ahead? No, no, it's all social purpose. So what's the solution to the problem, Steve? I mean, where, how do we fix this? Would you- you say it comes back to the notion that all effective advertising is really about uh, that exercise in problem solution, you know, the answering, looking for the problem, asking what the problem really is. Absolutely. And if for some people, James, the problem is I'm worried about our, cli- our climate, I'm worried about climate crisis, you know, kind of, that's the fundamental thing that worries me. And you have got a solution within the product that you're selling that can answer that problem. Go ahead and write a strategy that's about the environmental value of the product or service that you're selling. Please do so. If that's the main go-to-market proposition, is the thing that will prompt this person to buy your product, then by all means, please write a proposition. But I would argue that... The vast majority of people, the main reason why they do buy things is more directly self-interested than a a belief in the furtherance of social justice. How can a focus on selling, uh, marketing, the functions and the objectives of business and where we sit in the scheme of all that as an advertising industry mm. how can we with that focus help businesses who may be thrown through the flux that this post-covid world will bring us yeah. you know whether they sink or swim who knows but how can we ensure that they are staying above water as opposed to getting pulled down um, with- you mean on the client the clients uh, they will they will put their money below the line they'll put their money where they think there might be the possibility of a return and they will increasingly starve the advertising agencies of the funds they need in order to function. I'm afraid, as Martin mm. Sorrell says, he doesn't see he doesn't see the big agencies as his rival. He's a very clever bloke, you know. And 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 S S four Capital is doing gangbusters again. Ominously, I may be misinterpreting this, but they don't talk up brand building. Do you and think so- Do you think uh, clients will pull back on the brand building and go for more pragmatic? Just 
for, for the nature of survival, pragmatic short-term sales-based. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, yeah. I think they will. We've lost their respect. Right? I mean, we know we've lost their respect. Mark Ritson will tell you. Uh, it, yeah. It's not so much Mark Ritson. There's a Benjamin Brown, the chief, chief marketing officer at Samsung Europe, says in his new book, Build Brilliant Brands, CFOs and CEOs have no interest in joining the meeting when creative agencies come knocking. And by large, it'll be the CMO who handles it. But trust me, when someone like McKinsey is in at the door of a company to talk about marketing, it's not the CMO who owns it. Hmm. Okay. We've lost the faith of the CEO and the CFO. And, and it's just, it's egregious. The fact that we think having abandoned to make the argument that we will sell your products, we will drive growth, we will make you profitable. They will then listen to us when we say, actually, we will help you save the world. It's just like, it's, it, it, we'll, we'll teach you how to be better. You know, it's, it's, it's preposterous. And let's not, so we don't get too bleak about this, but there might be a glimmer of hope in the fact that there's been a proliferation of startups. Yes. Um, I don't know whether this has been happening in Oz as well, but there's been a, a whole rake of, of new, new agencies formed. Now, there's nothing concentrates the mind more than sitting in a room with three of your partners and a telephone and bugger all work to do. You know, so that when that phone call comes in, I imagine that suddenly those new agencies will, is, those new agencies will miraculously discover their commercial purpose. I think it, you were talking about um, it was quite important to choose the right client. I thought, well, yeah, it's, it's a luxury to be able to choose a client. I think these days, isn't it? You know, it, it is. But it's uh, but as I say, I think that there will be a discovery of commercial purpose. Uh, demand generation suddenly yeah my god that's all we ever did man you know kind of yeah, yeah. What, what are you selling i'll sell it for <laughs> you've got this no nonsense approach to your creative process you know a yeah. certain philosophy a brutal honesty towards what we do and how we do it much of your processes have been captured in your fantastic books how to do better creative work and how to write better copy how do we create better creative work though as I say, you need two big ideas, the big marketing idea. And we used to spend twice as long on the brief as we did on the creative um, until we could get it down to a single, until we could get the problem-solution dynamic down to a single-minded proposition, one sentence, okay? And that would essentially be, if you buy or use this service, your life will be better because. And it had to pass the lift test, you know. If you're in the lift with your prospect, and you had 11 seconds to, and your targeting was right. So your prospect was who you would, who you should be talking to. What would you say to them that would make them go, bloody hell, that's interesting. Tell me more. And that would be your proposition. And then you would give that to the creatives. Um, and their sole function was to come up with an idea that dramatized or demonstrated that benefit. And that's all. Not a line in the brief somewhere, you know, not, not one of the support points, not whatever. It would be, is this idea dramatizing or demonstrating the benefit that will accrue to the person once they use this product or service? And that's just made everything so simple. You know, kind of like you, 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 you instead, uh, once you've got that brief signed off by the client, the client knew what the ad will be about, which hmm. made easier the selling process already, okay? Because the client knows what the ad's going to be about. Usually, the agency Mm. rocks up 
and oh, it doesn't even turn up anymore. Sends the bloody ads over. And the client goes, what's this about? What's this for? Very often, that first presentation is used as a means of establishing what the ad should actually be about. Sure. But if you get the client to sign the proposition off, the client knows what's coming. Hmm. And then should, or, or what the ad will be about. And therefore should only be pleasantly surprised by the ingenuity with which you have described it. And I I criticised the Burger King thing earlier, but actually that is a that is a dramatisation of a pro. You can see where that's come from. You can that's a that's a creative dramatisation of the proposition. I wouldn't necessarily argue with the creative being bad. The creatives did their job. I think when we were um and anaring about it, we wondered whether the proposition was right. Mm. Understand? Yeah. We wondered whether the marketing idea was right, yeah. but I think the creatives did a very good job of dramatising or demonstrating it. It's no VW snowplow, though, is it? <laughs> it is not, because I don't think that the, because we're still slightly sceptical about the big marketing idea. Yeah. That the VW yeah. starts first time, every time, no matter the conditions, is the idea, is the marketing idea, and mm. then snowplow is the dramatisation of that. So it's a simple game, James, you know? If people can come up with it in their first idea, then bloody hell they're good, you know? But it takes time. And the thing about the job of the creative director, in my opinion, in my experience, is the creative teams aren't necessarily sure which of the 20 ideas is the great one. And it's the creative director's job to say, that's the one. Now, make it fit for purpose. And whether it's right for the audience as well, to your point. Yeah. Relevant abruption is something that you speak of. Could you just describe that for our listeners? Yes. And I think relevant abruption is, it isn't, it, it, look, hey, if you can come up with an idea that dramatizes or demonstrates the benefit, you've done a six or a seven out of 10, Hmm. you know, and that's, and I think by and large, you know, kind of, I, you, you, it's a difficult job. Come up with sixes and seven out of ten. Aim mm. for sixes and sevens out of ten. You know, kind of. But but to do an eight and a nine out of ten, it's got to have re- something I call relevant abruption, and that is that it has got to stop your prospect in whatever medium they're looking at their work, mm. and then the idea must take them directly to what's in it for them. You know, so it hasn't got to be borrowed interest. Yeah, I mean, you could write bollocks in 48-point Cheltenham Bold across a double-page spread, right? Mm. Uh, but unless you, you know, kind of, or bullshit, sorry, write bullshit. And, but unless you're selling agricultural fertilizer, you've got the reader's attention under false pretenses. The abruption has got to be relevant to what you're selling. Another approach you use in a, quite a, an amazingly simple formula is the promise proof uh, now, right. I, I know you've spoken about promise proof in some of the uh, masterclass workshops, but you're making a promise to your yes. audience. Your yeah. role then, after you've made that compelling oh, yeah, promise, yeah. is to back it up with proof. Yeah. And I, I think that's a wonderful um, you, thing you for people to keep in mind as well, yeah. You said earlier or later in the podcast, it all depends how this is edited, that I have a rigorous academic approach to the books, what mm. I write. Hmm. simply because I'm a copywriter. 
Sure. Uh, if I make a promise to you, I know as a copywriter or as a salesman copywriter, I've got to then back that up with the facts. Yeah. So I can make an emotional appeal to you that gets your attention, yeah. but I then have got to back it up with hard facts mm. so that you don't think I'm shitting you. Yeah. Mm. How would you summarise that into a sentence? If I could wear, wear that, if, if it wasn't... Uh, the thing that was emblazoned on your walls that we began with, <laughs> we sell or else. What would your what would your we sell or else be? <laughs> My creative philosophy was don't let any crap out. Yes, that was my creative philosophy because I think that that says that you can never have a pass. You know, you are an uninvited guest in people's homes or on people's screens, uh, and you never have a pass to let. To, 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 to get their attention with something that wastes their time or insults their intelligence. You have an obligation and a responsibility to say something useful and interesting to them. Don't let any crap out. I love it. You know, there are no briefs, no briefs that come through the department that can be just rushed out. You know, they all require thought, care and attention because you have an obligation to the people who are on the other end to say something interesting and relevant to them. What an absolute pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much for going through that as well. I really appreciate you taking through, taking us through your processes. I'm sure a lot of people in this industry who have been in the industry for a long time or those just starting out can garner a lot of, a lot of wisdom and knowledge and insights from that. So thank you so much. That's, that's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, I won't take too much more of your time. Thanks again. Um, give us all those links, Steve. We'll put them up on the show notes. Um, where can people find you? Do you have a website that's up and running at the moment? I don't. I'm, I'm, I am actually difficult to find. I don't have a mm. website. I don't well, have I know I can, I, can, I can reach out to you on LinkedIn and you'd probably yes, be quite happy to give anyone some advice on how they can be more effective in their marketing or their uh, advertising, marketing communications. So, yeah, reach out sure. to Steve if you... Yes, please do. Uh, my email address is harrisosteve at googlemail.com. That's H-A-R-R-I-S-O-S-D-E-V-E at googlemail.com. Um, if I may do a quick plug sure. uh, for how to do better creative work, as of next week, it will be available to people with dyslexia. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I think it's the first book to have this multi-platform approach to, dis- to, to helping people who are challenged by dyslexia. I'll send you a link to the launch event. It's been 12 months in the in the planning. Each chapter is read by a world-leading creative director, uh, but it's much more than an audio book. Believe me, there's been a mm. hell of a lot of work mm. done on it. So I'll send you the link to it. Fantastic. Steve Harrison, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again. But it was, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, James. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. I'll chat to you soon. Yeah, lovely. Cheers. Bye-bye. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.